The ads in this episode are way deep in the episode, and I don't want you to miss the coupon codes for this episode's sponsors because they both offer great services that are very useful if you're sheltering at home right now. So before we start, here are those codes. BetterHelp, an online counseling service at betterhelp.com, and the 10% off discount code is Y-A-N-S-S, and the other is The Great Courses Plus, an online video and audio learning service, and you get it for $10 a month. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 177. This is a special episode of the You Are Not So Smart Podcast about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. It's released in April of 2020. It will be released in a few days from this recording. So that's while the pandemic is still unfolding all around us. And maybe some of this material will be out of date by then. But if you're listening to it somewhere around the beginning of April, I hope it is really useful. By now, most of us know all the terms and the guidelines like social distancing, sheltering at home, wash your hands to happy birthday twice. All of this in service of the big idea flatten the curve, an idea which has spread as an idea through the population faster than the virus could ever hope. That's the power of culture, of human psychology, of brains interacting with brains. Of course, culture and human psychology and brains interacting with brains are also how the virus spread to begin with. And that is what this whole show will be about, the psychology behind the spread and the psychology behind the prevention of that spread. When I asked followers on Twitter what kind of show they would want if I did a show about the psychology of this moment, the answer I received most was, why aren't people staying at home? There are news articles in the news today about all sorts of social gatherings that are still taking place, all sorts of events that people are refusing to cancel. So this question still needs to be answered for the time being. But if you are listening to this after a period of time where this is not as much of an issue because there have been lockdowns put in place, just consider the question, why didn't people stay at home? The second most asked question was, how do we persuade people in times like this to take precautions and follow guidelines? So that will be segment two. And the other topic that was most requested was how to deal with anxiety and loneliness and relationships right now. So we're going to cover that in segment three. This episode will have six experts in it, answering all of this across three different segments. And those segments, again, with their time codes, in case you want to skip ahead, are segment one, starting at about five minutes, why we respond to situations like this in the way that we do. Segment two, at 49 minutes, how to encourage people to respond differently, both now and in the future. And segment three, at one minute and 18 seconds, self-care, how to take care of yourself during a long period of isolation. 
So let's play a little musical cue to break things up. And after that, segment one. Considering this is a deadly pandemic that spreads very easily through the most basic of human contact, why aren't people staying at home? Yesterday, I received a message on Twitter from Dr. Vyam Sharma in Australia, a frontline doctor treating COVID-19 patients, a person overwhelmed and risking his life every waking hour. And he wrote that even in Italy, which has been devastated by this illness, where things are far worse than they are in the United States right now, people young and old were still not social distancing. And so he said, quote, I'm worried the same will occur with COVID-19 in Australia. How do we persuade everyone? End quote. He, an expert in medical science, wanted me to ask some experts in social science how to get ahead of this thing. So, for Dr. Sharma and everyone else fighting this, let's explore that by first answering the question that is so top of mind right now, especially with doctors like Sharma who are seeing the effects firsthand, who are overwhelmed by the result of, in many cases, risky behavior. So the first bit of expert advice is this. If you answer the question, why are some people still not staying home with, well, obviously it's because they're idiots or selfish or in some way just bad people, bad human beings, you've already made it very difficult to change those people's behavior. Yeah. I mean, for me, labeling people who do bad things as bad because they're doing something bad is generally a bad approach. That's Dr. Julia Shaw, a psychologist who studies, among other interests, why people dehumanize others when they do bad things. She wrote a book about it, focusing on how we label others as evil. I'm Dr. Julia Shaw, a research associate at University College London and the author of Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. Shaw says one of the most important lessons psychology has learned in studying persuasion is that if you want to change people's behavior you must first understand what is currently influencing that behavior. We know that it's important to frame persuasion in this way thanks to another important lesson psychology learned a long time ago. When you try to explain the behaviors of another person, especially if they're doing something you don't like, you almost always, at first, attribute that behavior to that person's personality or that person's basic disposition, to who they are, instead of attributing it to the situation, to the context, to the influences around them to the risks and rewards pressuring them. The most common example is when someone does something reckless in traffic, you think, ugh, what an idiot. But when you do that same thing or something similarly reckless, you always have some excuse. You're about to miss your plane, the person ahead of you slammed on their brakes, something. When you make this overall thinking mistake, it's called correspondence bias, or the more popular term, the fundamental attribution error. And we know that this is an error because Again, thanks to psychology, we know that 
moment-to-moment, situations, and external motivations influence behaviors more than personalities do. When you do something that other people disapprove of, you can say to yourself, normally, I would never do that. But it's hard to offer other people that same forgiveness. Right. We're bad at empathy, generally. And we're really bad at perspective taking when it comes to reasons for behavior, which is kind of ludicrous in something like this, because we can all understand why someone would want to go outside. Just to be clear, we're talking about those periods of time when people can stay home, when they should be staying home, not when people must leave their home to go get groceries or supplies, or if they have jobs that demand that they leave, or when they must take public transportation to get to and fro. So with that in mind, what is driving people's behavior when they decide not to engage in social distancing or not to shelter at home or anything like that in a time like this? Why is grandma going outside kind of thing? And I think this is luckily in some ways um, making people wrestle with this exact question quite a bit is, well, I don't think grandma's evil. I don't think she's selfish, but she doesn't seem to get it. So maybe she's stupid, but grandma's probably not stupid either, right? Something else is happening there. And I don't think that, you know, everyone is always doing things, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts. I think people do intentionally do bad things as well sometimes, but my default isn't that. I mean, obviously human contact is such a fundamental part of the human experience that there's so many motivators to not follow the, you know, government guidelines. When we know other people have seen the same information we've seen and they still don't change their behavior in the way that we have, we tend to assume they must be stupid, selfish, or in the extreme, evil. But as Shaw explains, the truth is, especially during panic, panic that requires people to stay isolated. Our behaviors are motivated by factors more powerful than our personalities. Specifically, what we're talking about here are these things. The complexity of the issue, wishful thinking, learned helplessness, normalcy bias, and social contagion. And so for the next roughly 45 minutes, we're going to take all of those in that order, starting with complexity. because it's so big and global and we're not actually used to it's a bit like global warming like we're really bad at understanding things that are big global and have long-term implications and um this i I mean global warming is even bigger because it's also on a much sort of larger scale in terms of amount of time but i mean it's still this we're not used to thinking about those things and our brains just really struggle to 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 realize that. I mean, we're, we're, we're used, you know, our thinking is made for tribes. Our thinking is made for, you know, small groups of humans and anything beyond that becomes really difficult. Um, and on top of that, we have, you know, mathematical literacy. We have sort of innumeracy, people who are really bad at numbers in general, never mind at exponentials. They're looking at these graphs and, you know, they don't look at graphs in their normal life like this. And so it's really hard to, you know, take what you're seeing and put that into something that makes sense in your brain. This is such a big, complex problem that it almost feels, even to me, I feel like at least a couple of times a day, I go, this is so surreal. Yeah, there's this, there's this great illusion in disease outbreaks of what it means to, 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 to catch up with the, with the disease. And what public health officials say is, 
you always have the illusion uh, that you're caught up, but you're really seven to 14 days behind at all times. That's Dr. Joe Hansen. My name is Joe Hansen. I'm a YouTube creator and a scientist. I make a channel called It's Okay to Be Smart. What's your science background, Joe? Uh, for years, I was a molecular biologist. Uh, so before I was making YouTube videos. So in, in a way, <laughs> in a pandemic, maybe I've, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. Joe says that in the beginning of a pandemic, when numbers are relatively small, the reactions from the government and the people quarantining themselves and the people sharing frightening information on social media can all seem like overreactions because looking around, everything seems to be fine. But that's what gives a virus like COVID-19 its power. By the luck of the genetic lottery, this airborne virus has a long incubation period with no symptoms during which it is highly contagious. And those four features allow it to thrive within a social animal that likes to gather in large groups, one that has evolved to respond intuitively as a group to more immediate, obvious, and personal threats. Because this thing is invisible and it's it's spreading faster than you can detect it. So you're always playing catch up in a way. And you have to force yourself out of your normal ways of thinking and acting in order to leapfrog ahead, sort of leapfrogging ahead into a, an invisible predicted world. And we just don't tend to think like that. That's just not the the way we normally go about our, our, uh, our daily lives. That's not our normal way of, of cognition. With that in mind, Joe recently put out a video explaining why it can be so hard to flatten the curve, to do what is most important behaviorally, socially, psychologically, to avoid overwhelming the health system with a giant spike of infections. And to do that, as you probably know by now, you have to stay home and avoid crowds and wash your hands and so on in the weeks before the symptoms of the virus manifest. In other words, you have to act before it seems like it's time to act. And as Joe explains, humans are just not very good at that. Not at first, which in a time like this, at first is the time that matters most. On day one, no one you know is sick. It feels like a normal day. It may stay like this for a long time until one day a few people you know are sick. And suddenly a few days later, it will seem like everyone is sick and it will feel like it happened instantly. Everything looks fine until it isn't fine. This is the paradox of pandemics. And it's why with an outbreak like COVID-19, you hear health officials calling for huge, drastic, and rapid responses in the early days when infection numbers are still relatively small. It's a great video. I highly recommend it. And I'll have links to it in the show notes for this episode. And in that video, to help people grasp exponential growth, Joe uses a question from the cognitive reflection task a test in psychology that reveals how our intuitions concerning statistical and other mathematical problems is often very wrong. And so one of the most important cognitive skills that a person can possess is the ability to know when and when not to trust your gut. This is one of those problems that's supposedly asked in like Google job interviews and it's supposed to be this really hard uh, thought experiment of if you start with a pond with one lily pad and you know that on day 60, this pond will be full of lily pads, covered completely. And these lily pads double every single day. Well, on what day is, the, is this lily pad pond half full? Well, many people's intuition would say something like halfway through day 30. But the reality is that's day 59 because these lily pads double 
on that very last day from the half of the pond to the full pond. And what's even trickier is to think about not just the point of halfway, but something, a point that's smaller, like say just 1% of the pond. This doesn't seem like very much. Again, on day 60, we're full. Day 59, we're half. Well, 1% of the pond's coverage happens to come in at day 54. The very last seven days are where basically all of this visible growth occurs. It was quiet, quiet, quiet. Nothing was seemingly happening until it was very rapidly covered in lily pads. And if you can just for a moment put a virus in the place of a lily pad, then I think people can get a sense of just how rapidly and unexpectedly these can change and really sneak up on you in a funny way. Starting at one, doubling every day. If it takes 60 days to reach saturation, it takes 54 days before you reach 1% of saturation. That's how exponential growth makes COVID slow and invisible and then fast and everywhere. This is what makes everything seem very normal during a long stretch of time when experts are asking people to act as if everything is very much not normal. And for some, that long, quiet period of dissonance before makes it seem really unreasonable to stop engaging in your normal routines. I mean, even I, I mean, one of the reasons I went outside initially because is because government guidance was inconsistent and it was really unclear at what point I should be staying home. And so like, if I have one of the symptoms, but not three of the symptoms, you know, especially weeks ago, the guidance was still go outside. It's fine. And then, but you're in your head, you're going, but it doesn't seem like it's fine. But then you're outside nonetheless, because you're going, well, this is literally what the government is telling me to do. So, I mean, some of it is confusion. And I think that is one of the main things is that we don't know what we should do. Um, government guidance is constantly changing. We might not be on top of it. It's hard to understand anyway, because it's all medical advice. We're talking about exponentials. I mean, we're talking in a language that we're just not used to talking about. And Shaw says that one of the most dangerous things that can happen when people in authority provide mixed messages to the public is that a public that does follow guidelines may not continue to follow them if those guidelines keep changing, especially if the new guidelines completely contradict the old ones. People may enter a state of learned helplessness, and the result is just giving up, giving up following guidelines altogether. So learned helplessness is when we are exposed to a stressor, so something negative typically, um, repeatedly, and basically we. Um, we're so used to being attacked and not being able to respond appropriately, or we don't know how to respond appropriately that we just give up. And so that the helplessness comes from feeling like you've never been able to fight back. And so in terms of government guidance, if you translate that into something else, the sort of government piece is that your government, the government keeps saying, you know, here's what to do. And then the next day, I mean, we had this in the UK where Boris Johnson said, you should go outside to the parks instead of to other social events to get exercise this weekend. Everybody went to the park. <laughs> and on Monday, Boris Johnson yelled at us for going to the park. So, I mean, it just feels like you can't do anything right. And so that can create the same idea of like you're being punished, but there's actually nothing you, you don't feel like you're in control of that, like what you're being punished for, and you can't really fight back. And so you give up. And so you just sort of say, either I'm going to not try and understand this anymore, or you just say, I'm not going to do anything, which in some ways, if not doing anything means staying home is kind of fine. <laughs> but if not doing anything means giving up and not trying to follow the guidance, that's not so fine. In a state of uncertainty and complexity, 
in which the problem is invisible and the guidelines ask us to do something during a time in which everything still seems normal and we feel generally powerless to do anything, we will be compelled to lower our anxiety by searching for information that confirms we have nothing to worry about. This is something psychologists call wishful thinking. The situation is so enormous and unthinkable that it's easier to deal with it cognitively if we reduce the scale of what is happening to something that will affect only a small number of people. Or going further, we reduce it to something that's being blown out of proportion by the media. Or people that are overreacting thanks to the media. If we want those things to be true, then confirmation bias will rear its familiar and ugly head as we go searching for confirmation of what we would like to be true. And those are all sound strategies for reducing anxiety, at least at first, when no one you know is affected. For people who already distrust the media, this can just make everything seem like yet another crisis that will amount to nothing. We go online and we look up stuff and we go, you know, I'm going to look for articles that tell me either to panic or not to panic. And you'll find stuff. I mean, you'll find ridiculous conspiracy theories. And some of the same conspiracy theories that were around for, for example, the TB and other previous pandemics, um, where we saw massive medical emergencies and people come out with these conspiracy theories that you know, governments are trying to kill old people <laughs> or that you know certain category of people that we currently don't like or whatever are behind it and somehow trying to control people this way. It's just the internet. But unfortunately, if you're already engaging in wishful thinking, that can just reinforce your, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's as bad as they're making it out to be. Right. I mean, I think that's where, where this strong normalcy bias comes in, that we sort of expect that what's happened before will continue happening. That's social psychologist, Dr. Amy M. Gordon. I'm Amy Gordon. I am a social personality psychologist. I study well-being, health, and interpersonal relationships. And I am an assistant professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. What Dr. Morgan is talking about, normalcy bias, it's one of the most powerful forces in all of this. In fact, everything we've talked about so far exacerbates it. We each have a tendency in situations of extreme uncertainty to, at first, expect that things will continue to occur in the future the way they have typically occurred in the past. And most of the time we're right. You know, most of the time that is the way that our world works. And then when it shifts, when we have these huge unprecedented moments where things have changed, I think there we suffer. In airplane crashes and hurricanes and floods and volcanoes and tornadoes and house fires, even things like 9-11 and Chernobyl, people wait for far longer than they think they would to save themselves. Psychologists refer to this as normalcy bias, an extension of it. First responders call this negative panic. It's so predictable that it's often factored into fatality predictions in everything from ship sinkings to stadium evacuations. Some of the classic examples that people bring up are things like natural disasters, volcanoes. So people talk about with Mount Vesuvius that people didn't leave quickly enough. I think maybe a modern day example of that would be people during fires, you know, that we're experiencing on the West Coast or um, hurricanes on the East Coast where, you know, it's coming, you hear about it, but it's hard to really wrap your mind around the fact that something's so dangerous and big is coming that this change is happening. So people tend to stay in their homes a lot longer 
then they might, if they sort of were able to fully recognize the extent of the danger coming at them. People talk about it a little bit with car accidents too, that it takes people, like there's this period of adjustment where you kind of can't accept what's just happened, that you've had this experience, that you might actually be hurt. Um, and that some of that is just our brain sort of taking a while to recalculate and accept that, you know, something has changed, that the normal events aren't just happening. Another example I think about that's unfortunately become more prevalent is active shooter situations. And a little bit with that, where people tend to think, like to downplay it, right? Like they hear something happening and your first reaction is it's just teenagers messing around, right? Or it's um, fireworks going off and sort of that our brain is trying to calculate based on everything it's known before what could be happening and that sort of slowed down reaction time then to accept that, no, this is, you know, a dangerous and unprecedented situation. For me, by far, the most powerful example of normalcy bias I've ever come across is the Tenerife disaster. It's sort of a side story to all this, but I think it's worth hearing. So here's the story. In 1977, on an island in the Canaries called Tenerife, a series of mistakes led two enormous 747 passenger planes to collide as one attempted takeoff. A KLM flight bounced off a Pan Am flight, and then it soared for 500 feet and then tumbled on the ground in a terrible jet fuel explosion. Everyone on board disintegrated, and the fire was so intense it burned well into the next day. Rescue crews spilled out onto the tarmac, but they didn't drive out to the Pan Am flight, which was still intact. Instead, they rushed to the flaming wreckage of the KLM plane. So for 20 minutes in the chaos, firefighters and emergency personnel thought they were dealing with only one problem. They thought the flames peeking out from the fog in the distance were just more wreckage, not another airplane in need of immediate evacuation. So the survivors on board the Pan Am flight would not be rescued. Here's the scene. The engines were still running at full power because the pilot had attempted to turn at the last second and the crew couldn't switch them off because the wires had been severed. The crash sheared away most of the top half of the 747. People lay in pieces from the impact. Flames spread through the carnage a massive fire began to take over the plane and smoke filled the fuselage. To live, people had to act quickly. They had to unbuckle, move through the chaos onto the intact wing and then jump 20 feet onto wreckage. Escape was possible, but not all of the survivors attempted it. Some bolted into action, unbuckled loved ones and strangers and pushed them out to safety, but others stayed put and were consumed. Of the 496 people, only 70 had made it outside. Everyone else was killed. The center fuel tank exploded, killing everyone who had survived the initial crash and fire, but who had not escaped. According to Amanda Ripley's book, The Unthinkable, investigators later said that the survivors of the initial impact had one minute 
before the fire took them. And in that one minute, several dozen who could have escaped failed to take action, failed to break free of their paralysis. Psychologist Daniel Johnson has rigorously studied this strange behavior, and in his research, he interviewed survivors of the Tenerife crash. In Johnson's interview with Paul and Floyd Heck, both passengers on the Pan Am flight, they recalled not only their traveling companions sitting motionless as they hustled to find a way out, but dozens of others who also made no effort to stand as the Hecks raced past them. In the first moments of the incident, right after the top of the plane was sliced open, Paul Heck looked over to his wife, Floy. She was motionless, frozen in place, unable to process what was happening. He screamed for her to follow him. They unbuckled, joined hands, and then he led her out of the plane as the smoke began to billow. Floy later realized she possibly could have saved all those people sitting in a stupor just by yelling at them to join her, but she too was in a daze with no thoughts of escape as she blindly followed her husband. Years later, Floyd Heck was interviewed by the Orange County Register, and she told the reporter she remembered looking back just before leaping out of a gash in the wall. She saw her friend still in the seat where they had been sitting, with her hands folded in her lap, her eyes glassed over. Her friend did not survive the fire. John Leach, a psychologist at the University of Lancaster, says that in situations fast and slow, about 75% of people will wait and see what to do instead of acting right away. Why? Well, there's shock, shock at not knowing what to do in an unfamiliar situation, but there's also the risk of social shaming. No one wants to look like a fool if it all turns out to be false. No one wants to seem like a prepper or like they're overreacting, because if they're wrong, well, that makes you seem less trustworthy to your peers in the future. And since we are social primates, that's a huge risk that most people just do not want to take. In some ways, right, we're, we're programmed for this because most of the time that is what's going to happen. Things are going to continue happening the way they were before, right? One of our best predictors of what happens in the future is what's happened you know, right before that event. And so it's, it's hard for me to totally wrap my head around this because I think, right, like what I, I think, what would I do if a plane actually did crash? Right. I'm always thinking it might, but at the same time, I'm thinking that, but not actually thinking that right. Where I think perhaps if it actually did, it would be really hard for me to come to terms with that because it doesn't usually happen. Most of the time things are fine because I think in the current situation with the pandemic, we didn't know yet what was going to happen, right? We didn't know which path we were going to be on. Were, the, were we going to see that some people were overreacting? And, you know, that's happened before with H1N1. I think there were some places that treated it very seriously and reacted strongly by closing things down. And then they realized, no, it's not as, you know, lethal as we thought it was. It's it's not as big of an issue. And so they stepped back those measures, right? And so 
which we didn't know early on, I feel like, which way it was really going to turn out. Or at least that was my assumption uh, or my my perspective as somebody who's knowledgeable about these things, but isn't, you know, an immunologist, that I, I couldn't quite tell which path we were on yet. And so it was hard for me to reconcile whether I was underreacting or overreacting, right? Like which which way to go. No one wants to be an overreactor just in case it's nothing. And no one wants to be an underreactor just in case the threat is real. So what do we do in a situation like that? According to a 2001 study by sociologist Thomas Drabeck, when people are asked to leave in anticipation of a disaster, most check with four or more sources of information before deciding what to do. Then they check with family, then they go look up information elsewhere, and then they look to authorities. All those steps, known as milling, means that if everyone is doing that, then everything kind of seems normal right before the bad thing happens because no one else is freaking out. If everyone else is milling around waiting for information, you will too. Those who are deeply concerned with evacuation procedures, first responders, architects, stadium personnel, the travel industry, they're all aware of normalcy bias and they write about it in their manuals and trade journals. I found this 1985 paper published in the International Journal of Mass Emergencies and Disasters. In that journal, sociologists Shunji Mikami and Kenichi Akita at the University of Tokyo identified the exact same steps as Drabik, and they used the 1982 flood in Nagasaki as their example. Light flooding occurred there every year, and the residents assumed the heavy rainfall was part of that familiar routine. Soon, though, they realized the waters were getting higher and higher and doing so faster than in years past. At 4.55 p.m., the government issued a flood warning. Still, some waited just to see how peculiar the flooding would actually be, how out of the ordinary. Only 13% of the residents evacuated by 9 p.m. In the end, 265 were killed. So that's the power of normalcy bias to cause people to just keep doing what they would normally be doing because they don't know what they ought to be doing. And another issue is that when we're asked to change our routines, we often experience what psychologists call an extinction burst, which is what happens when an old behavior is dying out in the brain, being replaced by a new one. Like when you teach your dog to stop doing something naughty, and right when that naughty behavior seems to be gone, they act out one last time, to see if they can get away with it. If they can, then the behavior will be reborn anew. And that's how brains keep from losing good behavioral routines during temporary changes in the environment. During social distancing, people who have been very good for a week or so will often do stuff like this, inviting people over, going to hang out with a friend, just one little act of rebellion. Add this to something else called a last gasp of freedom, and things start to come apart. You know how people smoke one last pack of cigarettes, have one last drink, stuff like that? In this case, it's one last party, one last night on the town, or one last meal at a restaurant. Combine extinction bursts with last gasps of freedom. When everyone is doing that, then everyone sees everyone else doing that. And now it seems permissible, and it seems like if you don't do that, you might be the fool. 
you might be overreacting. When it comes to reducing anxiety with wishful thinking, there's this quote by Steinbeck that I love and I've said it many times in the show. Here's the quote. Sometimes a man wants to be stupid that lets him do a thing his cleverness forbids. In psychology, they refer to this as motivated reasoning. When highly motivated, we will reason our way, mostly through justification, toward the behaviors we want to do and the goals we wish to reach. If you want to get laid, you want to go to Daytona for spring break, you want to believe the president and the news you trust when they tell you there's nothing to worry about because they are motivated by some sort of drive, like not wanting to look weak or inept or harm the economy, or you just don't want to look like you're overreacting before it's time to panic and make the rest of the country panic, then all of this could lead to that universal element of human nature, normalcy bias. When we don't want to act because it is risky or because we want to do something else that those actions would prevent, we justify it to ourselves and others with motivated reasoning. And that leads to minimization. People say things to themselves like, it's basically like the flu, or it only affects old people, or the odds of you getting this are so low. I, um, there's also this like desire for it to be normal, right? Like I want, right. I don't want it to be real. Like I, I, yep. I don't, tre- I don't personally don't trend in the direction of, uh, you know, conspiratorial thinking as much as like a lot of other people in my family do, but I, yeah. but I, but like in this moment, I'm like, um, whatever that thing is really wants to be like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is really actually not going right. to be that bad because everything, right. It's still very abstract. Yeah. It's still just metaphors. I still just see charts and graphs on the internet. Like right. I, I, it has not gotten close enough to my social circle for me to have to right. break, to break the availability, uh, you know, the, the availability bias and normalcy bias walk hand in hand and dance through the garden right. together. And exactly. so, yeah, go ahead talk about that for a bit. No. So um, I completely agree with you again. It's, it's really interesting to be someone who studies this at the same time that I'm experiencing it, you know? And so I'm sort of thinking through my own personal experience and I, I've been thinking about this actually and linking it a little bit with climate change too. Mm. And our, how hard it is for some people to sort of see and accept that and that things that change slowly and that are more sort of future oriented. We're saying something's going to happen down the line if we don't take action now, when everything around us still looks so normal, is a particularly difficult. But if you live somewhere where you're seeing that change happen, or you are personally experiencing it with someone you know, I still don't know anyone who has been tested positive for coronavirus, right? My sister's family all have fevers. We'll never know probably if they have it or not because they won't get tested. But but because it's so distant from me, I think it, it felt like it can't really be that big of a deal, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not seeing it anywhere. But I bet the people who knew someone early on that for them, it felt big. Even if that person was in another country, to them, it suddenly became real and they were able to envision it in a different way. I also think that's why having celebrities test positive oh, wow, and talk yeah. about that makes people feel like it's more real, right? If you... We don't know Tom Hanks, but every, I keep hearing people talk about him. Mm-hmm. And it's that feeling. I had that same thing. I was like, wait, if Tom Hanks has it, like, okay, I have to take this seriously. Like, how did Tom Hanks get it? So I think there is something that can actually help us by hearing familiar names. You know, the uh, Justin Trudeau's wife, just people that to us um, we recognize. It, it creates more of that availability 
heuristic going on that, okay, now I can sort of visualize it because these faces that I'm familiar with, these names I hear, suddenly they have it. So now it feels a little more real to me. This is such a huge point. I was going to ask about that, and I'm glad you brought it up anyway. The guy that which and there's the availability, I guess, of it. The the yeah. I felt like Tom Hanks was the thing. Like, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a neuroscientist I followed. Asked, they were like, "What was the thing that made you start taking it seriously?" And I I was like, if I'm being honest with myself, it was Tom Hanks. It was because he's Tom Hanks. It's, he's the last. But, he's the last good person left in our country that we all love, but, and the, he's, he's the only person. <laughs> and, and he's not even here, right? He's in Australia. So right. what does that have to do with us in the U.S.? And yet hearing him that he had it, it was my sister texted me. And I remember texting her back being like, that's crazy. How did Tom Hanks get it? I'm like, how do oh, I don't even know him. Like, why shouldn't he get it? But it was I, it was a similar moment for me that it was a, a point at it that that things started to change. It's funny, you know, I've talked to my neighbor with our like 12 feet of distance this morning and he told me that Tom Hanks is getting better. It was happy to hear that. <laughs> that he sounds like he's doing well, right? It's just it's a it's a interesting it's interesting too because it means we're sort of all sharing that experience together also to make it normalize it for all of us, which is that's going a different direction, but I thought also a lot about normalcy bias in terms of how quickly then we adapt to the new normal and sort of expect this new situation to persist and how we sort of get comfortable with change that now it's like like sort of expecting life to continue like this, you know, for a longer period of time now as well. Yeah. I do want to really emphasize what you just shared. Um, the idea of you a scientist who is an expert on human behavior standing 12 feet away from your neighbor talking about how Tom Hanks just got, is better. Have you heard the news? Um, there's just something so powerful about that to me the, the, that that speaks volumes about what we're all going through and how, and how brains yeah. deal with a moment like this. I mean, it feels like every feels like everything that we're talking about is encapsulated within that moment, like from normalcy to availability <laughs> yeah. to, anxiety to panic to the changing of norms to all of it all of it right there right well i i think another thing to keep in mind is how much humans need connection and so you know we are seeking it out and in this time moments like this right um maybe standing 12 feet away from someone we want we want to connect with them in some way in this shared experience so finding that common ground whether it's talking about a celebrity or talking about you know our experiences of being isolated, whatever it is, we we as people really seek out those moments and those connections with others. That concludes the contributions of wishful thinking to all of this. Let's return to Dr. Julia Shaw to see where we are in this grand explanation of why don't some people stay home? 
during a pandemic? Yeah, so let's just quick summary. So one of the reasons why we might go outside or why people might go outside is because they're confused and because they have this kind of learned helplessness. Another is that they just can't grasp it, that it's too big for people to understand. And so they're just, it's, this is, I think we're actually a lot of sort of like, when you think of sort of grandma, I think it can be this sort of, it's so big and so complex that maybe it's difficult to grasp the scale of it. Um, and we engage in wishful thinking. Uh, that's number three. That's that we can just find anything to confirm whatever belief we happen to have. And so if we already think the world is ending, we can go find information that tells us, yes, it is ending. If we think it's not so bad and it's no worse than the flu, then we will find an article that tells us that that is true. And so we need to be very careful that we don't just have wishful thinking and you know, want the world to be a certain way. And then number four is that we just don't believe it. And I think this is where fake news comes in and where sensationalized stories and where uh, sort of media have been complicit in creating a constantly stressful news cycle. Everything and everyone is always <laughs> in crisis. And so when an actual crisis comes along, I mean, it, it can be difficult to know how serious to take it because you're going, well, but you've told me all these other things are crises and some of them have turned out to be fine, especially for me as an individual. And so why should I take this one seriously? What we are currently seeing in the United States is the devastating impact that partisanship is going to have on public health. That's psychologist and neuroscientist Jay Van Bavel. Hi, my name is Jay Van Bavel. I'm an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. My research examines how our group identities shape how we interpret the world. Yes, as crazy as this next part is going to sound, at least at the time of this recording, there is a huge partisan divide in human behavior in the United States. In one poll that Babel shared, the question was, whom do you trust for coronavirus info? Imagine there's a list of possible sources and you just check off which ones you trust. Democrats marked 87% the CDC, 75% the governor, 72% national media, 72% friends and family, 44% religious leaders, and 14% Trump. Republicans marked 90% Trump, 84% the CDC, 81% friends and family, 71% religious leaders, 65% the governor, and 13% national media. In a series of polls conducted over the last few weeks in the United States, we have seen repeated and robust evidence that Democrats are taking the issue of the COVID or coronavirus pandemic much more seriously than Republicans. There has been a big partisan gap in not only how seriously they see the threat, but on a number of health behaviors, like uh, willingness to minimize travel, uh, reduce time in crowds, uh, engage in hand washing and other social distancing activities. You might be skeptical uh, simply by seeing the polls that this is a partisan issue. But there is recent evidence that it is also mirrored in partisan gaps in infection rates. Uh, one recent piece of data that was released on 538 found that people in red states were now uh, getting infected at a greater rate than people at blue states. Um, this is a potential downstream consequence of these beliefs. Um, one thing that people have suggested is maybe this is just because you have a greater congregation of Democrats in urban environments uh, like New York City or Seattle where the, the virus 
has uh, hit first. And uh, this might account for it, but when we have looked at actual social distancing behaviors uh, in iPhones, when we statistically adjust for uh, urban versus rural environments or population density, um, we find that that cannot fully explain the partisan gap. So this suggests that partisanship is playing a difference in how people are uh, understanding this information and acting on the behavior uh, over and above the effects of just whether or not you live in an urban or rural neighborhood. One of the reasons we suspect this is happening is because the messaging uh, from Republican leaders like Donald Trump, uh, Fox News, and talk radio spent several weeks downplaying the risks of COVID. Um, and as the disease, or sorry, the virus started to take hold uh, and has been growing exponentially, people who didn't take early steps to reduce their risk uh, we're at much higher uh, probability of getting infected later on. Now, these are new studies. They're still being researched. They're still playing out. They still must be examined. But it does look like partisanship can play a significant role in how viruses thrive or perish, depending on the nuances of human behavior. But the good news is that this difference in behavior that we're seeing is not likely to continue. As People have been learning more and getting more exposed to different news um, and hearing uh, slightly different messages from the president uh, and Fox News. You have seen in some polls a closing of the partisan gap. So now the difference between Democrats and Republicans in their concern about uh, the pandemic has decreased. Um, yet at the last time I checked, there was still about a 20-point gap on one major poll. So... The partisan gap is closing, but it's still large and significant. So what should we do? Knowing everything that we now know, having learned everything we've learned so far in this episode, what should we do? Well, let's start with the what should we do part of the show by listening to what Babel has to say about that. What we want people to do is uh, look for nonpartisan news sources like the Center for Disease Control or the World Health Organization. Um, Tune out political leaders who might have their personal interests at heart and are not uh, are focused more on issues like getting elected or looking good in the media rather than ensuring the best possible health of their constituents. And so I recommend to people, treat your media diet just like you would your regular diet. This is a really important moment where you need a healthy media diet uh, to minimize the risk factors to yourself and to your family and to your friends. This is especially true if you're older or have uh, pre-existing health conditions or are in contact with family or friends who do. There are many issues uh, that are relatively trivial where partisans disagree, uh, like the size of crowds as at presidential inaugurations for Trump and Obama. Um, we Debate these things. Uh, there is a certain absurdity to them. Um, we are not talking about those type of issues right now. Uh, when we are talking about an issue of a pandemic, this is uh, very strictly a matter of life and death. And this is a case where uh, ignorance based on partisan identities and commitment to uh, what your leaders say could put you at moral risk if they are wrong. And this is why you need to only believe your leaders if their advice is aligning with what world's leading experts and medical doctors are saying. So with all that in mind, as consumers of information, let's begin segment two. 
What about people whose job it is to deliver that information? What should leaders, authority figures, heads of state, science communicators, doctors, and so on, based on what we know about persuasion, what psychology has learned through research, how should our messages to the public and to each other be framed? Well, to answer that giant question, I reached out to the world's leading expert on all of this, the expert. Seriously, listen to this guy's credentials. So I'm Richie Chasseway. Uh, I've uh, just written a new book called uh, The Behavior Business, uh, How to Apply Behavioral Science for Business Success. Um, I've been working in applied behavioral science for about 15 years now, initially for the government here in the UK. I started off working for uh, the Department of Health on anti-smoking uh, campaigns and then uh, went on to work in a number of roles within government, uh, advising on best practice in applying behavioral science, particularly in communications, so how we could use communications to change behavior. Uh, and then I went to Australia for a number of years where I uh, headed up a communication strategy for the federal government there, uh, but also worked at a state level in New South Wales, in Sydney. And, um, and then when I returned from Australia in 2015, uh, I worked for a company called Ogilvy, Ogilvy and Mather, who are a major communications network, heading up um, Ogilvy Change, which was their behavioral practice before I set up my own business specializing in applying uh, behavioral science and communications. And I now work for a company called BVA Nudge Unit, who are a uh, specialist behavioral practice, part of BVA, which is a large French-owned market research company. And we uh, apply behavioral science or, or nudges um, to influence behavior in a wide range of categories, particularly in customer experience, um, but also employee behavior. And we are also working for, for some governments uh, as well. Wow. So that is a, a hell of a CV, or as we'd say in my part of the world, those are some, those are some mighty nice bona fides. The, <laughs> the, um, that's, uh, this makes you a, uh, a super expert on something that I want to talk about for this very special episode of the podcast, which is trying to just give people something useful in this very uncertain time. Um, something that is affecting everyone, uh, everyone in your country, everyone across the, the planet. Here we are in two different countries right now discussing something that is connecting us in this very strange way. And as I understand it, the, the, you being a super expert on, on, on not just human behavior and, and how behavior is affected by context and, and external factors and all sorts of other things, but also how to advise institutions in, in taking what we've learned in the last 50 or so years. As you say in the book, we've learned more in the last 50 years than the last 50,000 years when it comes to human behavior. All of our philosophizing over the last 2000 years didn't really get, you know, hardcore quantified and tested until the last 50 years. And we're still sorting it all out. We're replicating it and really figuring out what does and doesn't work. You um, are in a position to advise governments right now. And as I understand it, you are advising France. Could you tell me what's going on there and how you were uh, asked to do this? And what are you advising them to do? Uh, well, yeah, it's it's a very new thing. So it's only literally happened in the last couple of days as we're as we're speaking. So so I can't say too much about what we are doing yet because that's still still being worked on. Um, but um, but we have been um, involved in in as I say the efforts there. We also are doing a bit of work in Italy as well. Um, at, the, at the time we're speaking, Italy is is starting to. Um, lessen some of the restrictions and the lockdowns they've had in place, such as the closure of schools, or will be doing so imminently. Um, and so we're helping there where uh, the schools, for example, are starting to open again, how we can ensure that some of the behaviours necessary to prevent the spread of coronavirus are actually 
uh, stay in place um, once once people those restrictions are lifted and also to minimize the impact of what's known as as behavioral fatigue or what's been called behavioral fatigue that is um, some of these measures that are being put in place such as lockdowns over time how you make sure people adhere to those when uh, after a few weeks they might be starting to get a bit stir crazy for example um, so um, so yeah so that's the kind of uh, thing that we're doing but it, but it, you know what we've done in the past and the kind of work I've done in the past has been around uh, introducing particularly through communications ways of um, of influencing behavior or framing choices for people um, that lead to the the decisions and the behavior that we want um, and, and as I say in the book uh, uh, you know if you're in business you're in the business of behavior that is you know a business has to influence behavior in order to, to succeed it needs people to buy its products and services at a fundamental level to in order to generate revenue and it needs um, the people within those uh, businesses to behave in certain ways to produce those products and services, or at the very least to program the machines that make those products and services. And the same is true uh, of government and, and the issues that we're facing with coronavirus, which is that, um, yes, so, you know, the solution to coronavirus long term is a vaccine. And, and we're reliant on the uh, medical scientists to to do what they need to do to produce that vaccine and reliant on the doctors and nurses um, within our, our healthcare systems to provide the care that people need to limit the impact of coronavirus directly on health. However, um, what we need to do in the interim um, is have is ensure that the behaviours of, of the populations of all the affected countries are, um, or that people are behaving in a way that limits the spread of the virus and limits the impact of it. So the relevance of behavioural science and the relevance of, of what you might call nudges to that are to uh, to influence behaviour of citizens in a way that we limit the spread of the virus. Now, I think one of the things that's that's very interesting and and I've written a little about recently is that you know effectively what we're doing by doing that is we're trying to buy time for the doctors and the nurses and the medical scientists. We're trying to you know the, the phrase that's being used at the moment is flattening the curve. We're trying to limit the or at least spread the impact of coronavirus um, such that there isn't a a noticeable peak or or a sufficiently large peak in cases um, that the healthcare system is absolutely overwhelmed because that has a big impact not only on people who have the virus and their likelihood of survival but also other people in the healthcare system who are vulnerable or other people in society at large and that's really where behavioural science and nudging can can help in this regard is by as I say influencing the behavior of citizens such that we don't create that peak and we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Well, I know people listening are going to want to know something practical and there may, there will be people listening who are in local governments. There'll be people who are in, who are the mayors of, of small towns uh, who are working in those administrations. I know from my Twitter followers that there are people who work on all levels of government. There are people within the United States uh, House of Representatives who listen to the show. So I'm wondering, um, what are some simple, practical, you know, things that we know already that could be helpful when it comes to, and I'll just go down a, like a very short list. Like when it comes to <laughs> asking people, please do uh, shelter at home, which is the euphemism we're using right now. So how can we encourage people to actually follow that advice? Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting one because one of the things that that I'm noticing a lot um, in in the US, but also here in the UK and 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 a few other countries as well, is there are big differences in the way that this advice is being framed 
and the way that the the um, you know the the measures are being uh, communicated to citizens. And one thing that we know from behavioral science, you know, one of the fundamental findings of behavioral science that I talk about in my book is how you say something is as important, if not more so than what you're saying. So um, so when you're talking about, for example, stay in your home, saying stay in your home is a very kind of um, is a very authoritarian way of, of positioning it. Um, and also it's a um, it's not necessarily framing it in a very positive way. Um, so, um, you know, I know I've noticed the effects of this myself, the town where I live in has, uh, which is a, a popular sort of day trip and holiday destination, um, was absolutely swamped with people at the weekend here in the UK because, um, that advice about staying in your home was being openly sort of flouted by a number of the, uh, by a lot of the population who, who felt that they did because it was, the weather was good. They felt they deserved a day out. Um, so, um, which obviously puts those of us who live in the town at risk. So mm-hmm. um, one of the ways in which you could frame staying at home is obviously in terms of, you know, some of the reasons for that and some of the positive aspects of it. So, of course, you know, there are things you can do staying at home, which are positive things, you know, whether it's, you know, catching up on the Netflix box set or, uh, you know, binge watching, uh, binge watching TV shows, um, whether it's, you know, it's actually, you know, the rationale for staying at home and the positive aspects of that, which are, you know, by staying at home, you are not risking the lives of people you care about. Um, you are not risking, you know, your elderly relatives or uh, or those people, you know, who may have um, pre-existing health conditions um, and presenting it as a kind of altruistic act. Mm. Uh, one thing I thought I thought was very interesting was I saw the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, talking about um, a different uh, behaviour related to um uh, to coronavirus, um, and he claimed it was un-Australian. So uh, he was talking about stockpiling in that case, but people who were stockpiling, he said, was un-Australian. And having lived in Australia, I know that's basically the worst insult you could ever give to an Australian, mm-hmm. um, is, to, is to claim that they are an Australian, a very proud uh, nation. So, um, so you know, by saying that, um, he was really, you know, in the strongest possible terms, uh, pointing out that those people were, were A, not part of the in-group, that is Australians, um, and B, um, that that behaviour was was deplorable. So, um, so you know, I guess you know, in those ways, um, and creating those kind of leveraging those kind of biases that we have uh, in terms of how we frame the information, rather than in a slightly equivocal way saying don't go out or, or stay at home, uh, saying that actually by going out, um, these are the consequences, and these are you know, market if you like stigmatising it in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, I would say would be much more effective. It's something that's it's difficult. But I, I feel it, you know, like I've tried to feel like an empathy toward all human beings in the sense that, you know, we are so, you know, it's the fundamental attribution error, the whole thing that goes around with that. Just the idea that, you know, as you say all throughout your, your book, that people are uh, different contexts, different pressures, different goals, different motivations, different risks, rewards. It alters what people do, even if they believe in their heart of hearts, if they believe like uh, they identify with the concept that no, I choose what I do, and you know I deeply ruminate, and uh, my values guide my behaviors. We know from the research, we know from the application of the research in your work that um, people are driven by motivations, and those motivations can come from all sorts of external factors. And I try to feel that when I look at the the uh, what's going on with the, with like the spring breakers, for example, like. Um, if you, if any one of us had the sort of pressures and motivations that they have and the same risks and rewards, maybe we'd behave in the same way because that's just how brains work. Um, 
so the 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 tisk tisking and finger wagging is not how you influence that cohort to mm. alter their behavior. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I think you know we uh, there's a there's a concept which is uh, which I, I I'm sure you're, you're probably familiar with, which is psychological or reactance a bias that we have, which is reactance, which is that you know often uh, when we're told to do something, particularly by a perceived authority figure. Um, then uh, we react against it. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, there's a particular issue with that with coronavirus, which is related to how people's perceptions of uh, those authority figures, particularly politicians. Um, I mean, I remember a very interesting example, which um, fortunately the government in the UK seems to be largely adhering to. But when I worked um, in government in, in the UK in about sort of 2010, um, that was a year after the uh, H1N1 uh, flu um, pandemic had happened, the um, the swine flu mm -hmm. pandemic. And um, what was very interesting about that was that um, what the government had discovered uh, during in the UK had discovered during that uh, virus was that actually in order to get adherence to the measures that the, the government was advising, um, the advice was much more likely to be adhered to and followed when it was communicated by the chief scientific advisor, who's the most senior science advisor to the government, and the chief medical officer, who's the most senior medical uh, advisor to the government, than it was when it was communicated by the prime minister or any other politician. Um, and that was because there was a perception that whatever advice the politicians was giving was effectively biased in some way or it was it was it was suiting their own purposes um and and particularly for people obviously who you know maybe didn't vote for the guy who was who was communicating that advice um whereas when it was communicated by the chief scientific advisor or the chief medical officer they were perceived as they are as neutral um advisors and also it was leveraging a little bit of authority bias and 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 you know as as demonstrated by things like the famous Mil milgram experiments you know we have a lot of deference towards scientists and we have a lot of deference towards you know what the traditional white coated kind of um white lab people in white lab coats um they're perceived as experts and they're perceived as as being independent um and that was really necessary in terms of the advice that they were giving on how people should behave um and it's been noticeable that there's been a real change in the way that the government here in the uk has been communicating around coronavirus which has been that they've been giving e in the daily briefings that are now happening they give equal weight to the prime minister boris johnson but also to the scientific advisor and the medical and the, the chief scientific officer and the chief medical officer as well and their advice is seen as, as being as, you know, as weighty, if not more so. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I've seen uh, like uh, it's sort of kind of happening in our, you know, briefings as well. But who knows? But I, I'm, I'm hoping it'll continue. Um, and to your bigger point, like um, I noticed that like, you know, when a trend, if there would be certain there is this there's this reaction that's happening in the United States right now, which is to say like how are the red states handling this and how are the blue states handling this? And there's this um, finger, I can see this narrative forming that the Democrats are doing this and the Republicans are doing this and you ought not be doing that. And whatever it is that that group of people is doing that, that we have identified that is more common within, within that cohort and we'd rather them not be doing that, um, the identifying it as a thing that that group does and we are against it is just 
there's everything in social science says never, ever like <laughs> try to change behavior from that direction by saying, um, oh no, the Repu you know, the Republicans aren't, uh, conservatives aren't taking this seriously because they're conspiracy theorists and they think that, and so whatever it is you're, you're, that you would wish they weren't doing, which might be legitimate, but you're saying the reason they're not doing it is because of the group to which they belong, uh, requires them or, or, or is more likely to, uh, um, influence them or they're doing it simply because they are part of that group. It's over. You've done, you've just ruined any chances of reaching that group. Am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think the, um, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, you know, um, how you communicate something is important as what you're saying. And that, that equally applies to who's communicating that information to you. You know, we, we can receive two pieces of information from two different people and perceive them completely differently, depending on what our associations with that person are. Um, and often that will be subconscious. Um, so, you know, as you say, you know, if we if it's communicated by a Democrat or Republican, how we perceive exactly the same information will be will be received differently because of the association, subconscious associations we have with that person and whether mm. we we are part of that group, and we identify, self-identify as being in that group or not. Right. So, so uh, yeah, you know, those, those in-group biases um, are really strong uh, for issues like this, particularly given, you know, how high the stakes are. I think going back to what we were saying about, about young people as well, I think one thing that's really interesting as well is that, you know, there is a general reactance against authority figures amongst younger people, um, you know, anyone who's a, who's a parent will know this very well. Um, and so, you know, it, it, thinking about how to, you know, when you talk about the spring breakers, for example, thinking about who's going to be most influential with that group is really critical. To be frank, you know, they're not going to be listening to the governors and the president and, and anyone, those kind of authority figures, or certainly a lot of them won't be um, in this uh, and they won't be at they won't be adhering to their advice as strongly as other groups would. So, you know, that's where, for example, influencers become really important. And I know this from some some of uh, my own work. Um, when I was in Australia, we did a campaign looking at addressing antisocial behavior uh, through social media channels and, and digital channels. So this is, for example, um, you know, sharing photos of people without permission, cyberbullying, those kind of behaviors. Um, and the way we were able to influence that and the, the way the campaign worked was was we developed um, a, a hashtag which was specifically for use by teenagers themselves it was called xtl which, which stood for crossing the line so it was a way for teenagers to call out unacceptable behavior online and that was much more effective than the government going out and saying these are the acceptable behaviors these are the unacceptable behaviors the reality is is that most teenagers do behave perfectly respectfully for uh, between themselves um, and they know when a, a line has been crossed they know when, when what is acceptable is when right. what is not acceptable so it was simply about providing the tools to allow them to self police that behavior rather than if the government had gone out and said do the do do this don't do that it would have just been ignored and in fact it probably would have been more likely that they would have done the opposite of what we wanted I suspect you are ready for a break, but I have good news. After this break, we'll be asking an expert in reducing anxiety, 
preventing panic, and avoiding the negative impact of fear. How, if you're staying at home, you can reduce anxiety, avoid panic, and mitigate the damaging effects of fear. In addition, we will talk about how to deal with loneliness and isolation and how to navigate romantic relationships in the time of Corona. After that, you will hear final thoughts from all the experts in this episode about how they are doing all those things and what they believe the overall takeaway should be from this whole discussion. All that after this commercial break. so pleased when I learned BetterHelp had chosen to become a sponsor of this show because I really believe in their service, especially right now, and I was already using them. I already had an account with BetterHelp before all this started. I already have a therapist there, and I can honestly say it is tremendous. And right now, stuck at home, feeling isolated, worried about the state of things, I mean, that's what this show is about in a lot of ways. That's what the next segment is going to be all about. Well, BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who can help. You can talk to a licensed online therapist and find relief. The therapists at BetterHelp specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, insomnia, family conflicts, and more. Now, before the pandemic, I had most of these, to some extent, as issues I wanted to talk about. But since the pandemic, I've had some of these that I've wanted to talk about most of all. And I can tell you, you will connect with a therapist there in a safe and private online environment. And anything you share is confidential. But more importantly to me, you fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs and you get matched with a therapist that you will love in less than 24 hours. And it's a big part of the service to find someone who matches you, someone who understands your sensibilities and your values. And so you click with that person. And if you don't click with that therapist, you can re-roll the therapist and get another therapist within 24 hours until you find the one that really works for you. And then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with that therapist and exchange unlimited messages back and forth with this sort of text messaging service that they offer. This makes this a service that will give you professional help when you want it, wherever you are. Listeners of You Are Not So Smart can get this already truly affordable option at 10% off for the first month with the discount code YANSS. So get started. Get started today. I believe in the service, and I think it will help you as much as it's helped me. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. 
And there truly has never been a better time to try out online video-based therapy. And this is the best one as far as I'm concerned. And I think you should give it a shot. Betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. Go there. Find the one that works best with you. Also, since most of us are sticking at home right now, if you haven't tried out The Great Courses Plus yet, now would be a great time to do that because they have thousands of lectures from the world's best professors and experts. And The Great Courses Plus is just a great way to stay informed and engaged if you are locked down at home. You can better understand our current situation with fact-based courses like An Introduction to Infectious Diseases to learn about viruses, vaccines, and disease transmission. Just this week, they released a new course only on the coronavirus, separate from the infectious disease course. This one is just on the coronavirus. They also have money and banking, what everyone should know to help contextualize the current stock market. Or you can discover fighting misinformation, digital media literacy, very important right now. You can keep the kids learning about math, science, and history while they're out of school. Or you can use this time to pick up a new hobby like gardening, cooking, or even learning a new language. I'm using it to learn French. Here we go. Bonsoir, mes chéris. Bonsoir, mes chéris. Ah, it's really tough to get that R. R, 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 R. <laughs> I will get it eventually because with a Great Courses Plus app, you can listen or watch anytime from a phone, tablet, or internet-connected TV. I love the Great Courses Plus because each course is usually about 30 lectures, and each lecture is about 30 minutes long, and it's usually taught by someone who is a world expert in what they're talking about, and it's well curated, it's well vetted, it's well put together. And I have a lot of stuff in my queue that I'm going to get to right now, including a whole lecture series about the Black Plague and another one about language in the mind. Oh, this one looks so good. Language as a system, 11 linguistic universals, communication in the animal kingdom, genes, brains, evolution of language. Ugh, I'm going to watch that one very soon. Okay, so here's the offer. The Great Courses Plus is giving listeners to You Are Not So Smart a free trial, and after that, $10 a month when you sign up for a quarterly plan. Now is the time to use this. Use this right now. Sign up today using this URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. When I interviewed the guests in this episode, all of them, everyone, we spent about 15 minutes, sometimes longer, just commiserating, connecting, hanging out, comparing notes, that sort of thing. And it just so happened that for me, um, for a few of these interviews, my birthday was the day before or a few days and the memory of it was still fresh on my mind, the emotions of it. Because um, my parents, they paid me a visit. They paid me a surprise visit for my birthday. I was here where I'm at right now, working on the previous episode. And uh, I heard a knock at the door of my garage. And uh, there was my dad, 72 years old, you know, big bushy beard, um, Vietnam vet hat, <laughs> uh, what we would call around here Sunday clothes, like tucked in shirt, 
Um, and uh, on the other side of the glass of the door, he was holding a bag of boiled peanuts. I don't know if they have that where you are, but that's very popular here in uh, the South where I live. And it's just a tradition in my family. My grandmother used to make boiled peanuts every Sunday to this big um, pressure cooker. And she made a lot. And so people would go over there and we ate them. And, and it's, it's, I guess it's, I don't even know how to, what would be similar if you don't have this. Uh, maybe chestnuts, roasted chestnuts, or uh, I don't know. We ate it like popcorn. Uh, so they came to town just to give me those peanuts. My birthday present. With a note on them saying that they uh, love me and that their dog, Sissy, also loved me. And I was so terrified because, you know, they're, they're in their 70s. And they really shouldn't have done that. And he hung the bag on the doorknob and we chatted for a minute through the glass. And then I talked to my mom, who stayed in the car. And I talked to her over the phone, but I could see her. And when they left, I just stood there. And I, uh, I wept. And so with every guest in this episode, we just shared something like that before going into the podcast mode of asking and answering questions. And I just wanted to tell you that because I've noticed more and more that that's happening in these professional interactions. And I don't know if it will last, but right now, at least with what I do, we've become um, more real more human, less performative, something like that. Uh, well, happy birthday. Belated happy birthday. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. My uh, parents even came by. They're in their 70s, and I was like, please, no, don't do this. Uh, don't come yeah, yeah. Don't come into, the, into town. But they only came into town just to surprise me, and it was very um, – it was very heartwarming and very sad and very strange. And my dad talked to me from the other side of the glass, but my mom stayed uh, in the car and she talked to me on the phone. So it very much felt like a prison scene. Like I was on the phone looking through the glass. She was on the phone looking through her glass and we just like <laughs> chatted for a minute. And then they got in their car and left. And I, and I remember as they went away, I was like, wow, this is really real. This is, we were really living through this. Yes. Yeah. Well, I had a similar experience earlier actually, where, um, unexpectedly my, my wife's parents, um, drove over, uh, about, they live about 50 miles away and they sort of called and said, Oh, we're five minutes away. Um, and my wife was like, what, what the hell are you doing? Why are you coming over? And they said, Oh, we just want to drop off. It's my wife's birthday soon. Um, similarly, and they want to drop off some presents. Oh, wow. And, um, and, and we had to do a similar thing. She basically said, well, you can't come in the house. You have to, uh, you know, sit outside in your car. They had to deposit things outside the car and then we had to run out and collect them. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was crazy. Um, but you know, we were waving at each other through through two two panes of glass there, the, the glass of the car and then the and the glass of the house. So yeah, it's very very strange times, aren't they? But um, yeah, you, you want. I I do wonder, you know, um, and I guess you know this might be something to talk about, but what the long term impacts of that, what new norms it's going to create around uh, its social interactions and behaviour and and so on.
That was Dr. Richard Chataway, who spoke to us in the previous segment about persuasion. In this segment, we're going to talk about those emotions, those feelings that we're commiserating over. Anxiety, depression, isolation, loneliness, romantic feelings, all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about that in this segment. And then after this segment, you're going to hear some final thoughts from everyone you've heard from so far. So to introduce this, let me say this one little mission statement thing. One of the best ways to fight COVID-19 is to fight ourselves. While doctors and medical scientists are fighting the virus at the level of chemistry, the social sciences are helping us to fight the behaviors that empower COVID-19 to do its worst. And it's really important that we learn from this as we go through it and as we get through it. Because we're going to go through something like this again and we have to deal with big problems that already exist, like climate change. And the social sciences offer this to us, this ability to deal with these large-scale problems that are bigger than our minds are able to handle in the ways that we've described in this episode. That's why this episode has focused on what the social sciences have to offer. In this moment, when ourselves can seem mysterious to ourselves, Oh, where do I begin? Uh, you know, it's really begins by starting, you know, how helping us understand how our minds work. You know, if we don't understand how, how our minds work, how possibly can we work with them? And so it has everything to offer from, you know, helping people understand how social contagion works to um, how we get addicted to the news to, you know, how we can start to work with anxiety. And that is what we are about to do. Work with anxiety with Dr. Judd. Brewer. My name is Dr. Judd Brewer. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I specialize in anxiety and habit change. So let's talk about that, starting with this question for Dr. Judd. What are some mental hygiene tips for all of us hunkered down, waiting this out, flattening the curve, talking to our parents through the glass for what's going to feel like a long time and for what will be, for most of us, the longest time we've ever had to do that? Yeah, so let's... Uh, I think it's helpful just to have a foundation around like two seconds on how, you know, how our survival brains work, how, how fear works and how that things get jacked out of control because that actually is fed when somebody's in isolation and they're not around people to kind of fact check them or, or sanity check them. Mm. Um, so that's why I'm going to, I'm going to start here and then we'll get to the specifics of your, of your question. So I, I just want to say fear is a very basic survival mechanism that we all have, right? And uh, who was it, Roosevelt, that said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Mm -hmm. And I, one way I could twist that <laughs> is to say, you know, when we start freaking out about freaking out or when we start freaking out about fear more specifically, that's when we get into trouble. So fear helps us survive because we can learn what to avoid, you know, what danger to avoid in the future. But our, um, you know, our survival brains actually started to, you know, after that evolved this neocortex, this new part of the brain, and in particular, the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in thinking and planning. So it's important for us to be able to think and plan. But to think and plan, we need accurate information. Right now, we don't have a lot of accurate information, not only about the virus, but also about how we're going to respond to this. Because, you know, in, in our lifetimes, you know, when, when did we have a really big pandemic in the past. It was like a hundred years ago. So nobody's alive from that. 
that can say, hey, this is, you know, this is what we did. And it probably would be different now <laughs> anyway, yeah. what our response would be. So nobody's had um, had experience with pandemics before like this on this scale. So everybody's trying to figure out what to do and try to gather that information as quickly as possible. But without that information, fear plus uncertainty or lack of information leads to anxiety. And this is where the freaking out about fear is the problem. It's not the fear itself. It's the freaking out about the fear. We get anxious. And then when you, so let's say somebody's at home alone and they, you know, they want to see what's going on in the world, they go on the internet. And so on the internet, the internet's a great place for spreading social contagions, the spread of emotion or spread of affect from one person to another. So you can walk into a room and if people are all, you know, if they're all happy, you might be more likely to be more happy. If you walk into a room and everybody's panicked, then you're more likely to be panicked. Well, you don't have to be, you know, within six feet of people to catch social contagion. <laughs> uh, that's the problem with social contagions. You go on the internet and you can, somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world. And the more you scroll, the more likely you are to catch it. So fear plus uncertainty leads to anxiety. Anxiety going on so plus social contagion, say on social media, leads to panic. And that's when our prefrontal cortex goes offline and we start buying up all the toilet paper in the grocery store. <laughs> there are people who are saying, hey, you shouldn't be freaking out right now. You're freaking out. You're, you're, you're blowing this out of, out of proportion. And there are people on the other side who are saying, no, this is the time to blow this out of proportion. This is the time to overreact just in case. Where are you on this? Because you study and give advice about anxiety, panic, and fear. What are your thoughts on that? So I think we should be very precise with our terms in terms when we're talking about these things. And I think that might help clarify uh, so on one hand, you know, if you take the camp that says, oh, we shouldn't be, um, you know, we shouldn't be taking this seriously, I'm going to use that term in a precise way or in a, in a specific way. And there's another camp that says we should be taking that seriously. That's very different than we should be freaking out. So I've never had a patient in my clinic come in and say, you know, doc, I'm just not anxious enough. Um, you know, I do so much better when I panic, you know, I can get my work done. I have better relationships. I can think clearly when I'm really panicked, you know, can you help me panic more? Uh, it, that's not how our brains work. So mm -hmm. I, I, what I would suggest is that I've never seen any benefit of panic or anxiety because our thinking brains are offline when we're panicked and when we're anxious, there's lots of, lots of research about that. But going to your two sides of the argument you know, uh, piece here, whether you know, this is about, should we be taking this seriously? And that means thinking and planning, not freaking out. Does that help clarify? Cause my position is no anxiety and panic never help anybody ever. Um, what are some ways, some like straight up actionable, practical advice for how to be a better person alone with your thoughts with social media right there in, um, at arm's length available to you at any moment, you can get in bed at nine o'clock at night and say, tonight's the night I go to bed at 10. And, uh, and instead you get on Twitter and freak out for three hours. <laughs> and then you wake up and the very first thing you do is turn into Picard and go damage report. And then you take out your phone and go, Oh, 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 um, I know it feels like, like, this is gonna be a two part question for question. Mm -hmm. Number one, that feels like, it's reducing my anxiety to do those things. Is that true? Question number one. And question number two is what, what is a good way to mean to reduce anxiety for real? 
uh, based on your expertise in a time like this? Right. And those are related. So, you know, if we do the damage report, it really depends on how, what our mental state is in that moment. So, you know, if you think of the old Star Trek where there was Captain Kirk, you know, he's like the emotional one. And then Mr. Spock, he was the mm-hmm. or highly illogical captain, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So he, he had no, uh, he was all prefrontal cortex, basically the Vulcan version. So you can think of it that way is, you know, if we wake up and we do damage report in the morning, if we're Mr. Spock, we're going to respond rationally and do what needs to be done. Like, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened. Let me plan for what I need to do based on that information. We're getting information and we're acting on it. If we're Captain Kirk and we're just cussing up and down, you know, um, that's not, that's probably not going to help. And we're not going to be able to use that damage report accurately. We're actually just going to get more freaked out with everything that we see, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening right now that's, that that is freakable if that's a word <laughs> no wow that's a good there's a lot of stuff happening right now that is freakable <laughs> yeah absolutely so so what can we do that's the important thing is not that hey people so people don't stop listening now because you're like oh my god the world's ending and here's what to do right don't turn off the show now here's what to do we have to be able to get our prefrontal cortex back online so the first thing we have to do is is to calm our nervous system so that we can use our nervous system, as in use our prefrontal cortex. There are some very simple ways to do this. Uh, taking some deep breaths, especially some conscious breaths, you know, where we're um, really bringing awareness to our breathing can literally help us calm our nervous system. So it increases the parasympathetic tone, all of this stuff. There's even some you know, kind of box breathing that the Navy SEALs use where they count in a certain number of um, seconds and then hold it for a couple of seconds and then count out. I'm just dropping in here to tell you what that box breathing technique is because we didn't cover it in the conversation. It is to exhale for four seconds, then inhale for four seconds, hold it in for four seconds, and then exhale for four seconds and repeat. So that's one simple thing to help calm physiology. And you mentioned meditation. So my lab studies mindfulness training and clinical applications, in particular digital therapeutics, which is, you know, I think this world has just shifted into, you know, it's been kicked in the pants to to start using digital therapeutics. Uh, hopefully there will be an evidence base that follow a lot of these things soon. But my, my lab's been studying uh, an app called Unwinding Anxiety to see if it can actually help people, you know, calm these, you know, not get caught up in these anxious habit loops. We just finished a study that was just, um, just published or accepted for publication. I'm not sure that it's out yet with anxious physicians. Um, so we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians uh, within a couple of months of them using this app. Now, it was our first study, so we wanted to make sure that that was legit. So we did a second study. This was, uh, this was funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health. And we did a randomized controlled trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder who, you know, the stereotype is that they're, you know, they wake up and they're anxious and they're anxious until they go to bed. And then anything is just makes things worse. It's, it's a really tough thing. So we did a study with, with people with generalized anxiety disorder and got a 63% reduction in these clinically validated anxiety scores. Uh, and it was, uh, it was against treatment as usual. So people did do a little bit better on, you know, seeing their doctors and all this stuff, but they only got a 
the folks in the control group only got a 15% improvement. So there was a significant difference, and it turned out to be this, there's this term number needed to treat. You may know this, um, but in case your listeners don't, it's basically a, a back-of-the-envelope calculation you can do to see how good a, a treatment is. So for example, uh, with medications for anxiety, the number needed to treat is 5.15, which means you need to treat about five people, just over five people, to see an effect in one person. With this app, with this Unwinding Anxiety app, uh, the number needed to treat was 1.6. So if you're going to play the treatment lottery, you want the ones with the low numbers because you're more likely to win. So here, you know, what we did with this app was that we give people these very short trainings and short practices that basically boil down to, I think of it as like short moments many times. That's how you form new habits. So we can we can give people these very short mindfulness practices that they can bring into their daily lives and at the same time learn how their minds work so they can learn to work with them. And with, you know, with this package, they can actually, you know, they can actually significantly improve. Now, we also, I'm just trying to do whatever I can to help. We, we, we took some of the practices from that and just made this app called Breathe by Dr. Judd that's free. People don't even have to add, put in their email address. So we'll, you know, it's, it's totally, we're just putting it out there to help people. And that takes a, like one of the core breathing exercises in that app that actually brings in some tactile and visual uh, cues to help people kind of stay in the present moment. So if anybody wants to try that, it's free on Android and iPhones or, uh, you know, have at it. Um, once, so, once again, what's the name of it? It's Breathe by Dr. Judd. There okay. are a bunch of apps out there called Breathe. So don't, don't just download the first one you see. It's the right. one that it's got to be Breathe by Dr. Judd, or maybe it, it should say like Mind Sciences or Claritas Mind Sciences. Uh, the other thing I would say is, well, this is going to be a little bit of a brain hack. So there's this uh, reward part of our brain that actually stores reward value. And, you know, the simple way that I think of this is, you know, if, it helps us make choices. And if we're given two choices, we're going to pick based on which one is more rewarding. So if I am given a choice between broccoli and chocolate, uh, from a survival standpoint, chocolate's more densely packed with calories. Uh, hence, it tastes better. So my brain's going to be like, hey, I'll chocolate. So given choices, our brains are going to pick based on how rewarding a behavior is. So here, it's really helpful to help us do, uh, to pay attention, bring awareness to when we're freaking out and look at the cause and effect relationship. So when I freak out, what do I get from this? Well, I feel exhausted, uh, frazzled. I probably don't help any of the relationships that I'm in, in the, with the, in the house that I'm sequestered in with people. You know, it's like it, all those things are not actually that rewarding. And that, that, Updating of that information, helping us see that really clearly opens up the door for what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And there we can, there are lots of things we can do. I just put out a, a video on, um, you know, let's, let's spread uh, connection as the new infection, right? So from with social contagion, we get freaked out. That doesn't feel very good. You know, anxiety doesn't feel very good, but it feels good to get a hug, for example. It feels good to connect with people. And I actually got my cat to do a cameo on that video. Um, so I, I demonstrated, you know, cuddle with your pets. I would love to see as a silver lining to this that people go out and adopt uh, cats and dogs and, and animals from from animal shelters, right? So they don't carry, as far as we know, they don't carry coronavirus. Uh, they are very cuddly. 
you can sequester yourself with them. They probably like that <laughs> if you spend if you spend time with them. Um, so all of these things are helpful, and they're helpful such for a, us. Such a side. They probably like this. Uh, my confidence. <laughs> I have a hypothesis, and I have a high level of confidence that cats do enjoy being pet, and dogs like snuggles. But I can't commit one hundred percent to that. So well, you know, uh, <laughs> it's an empirical question that you could challenge your readers to do the research on and report back. And you know, we I'm that sure we is, get a. You, you are silver tongued. This is a good, yes, that's good stuff. Uh, I challenge you, dear listener to, uh, do your own research into this, uh, and give me an evidence so I can have an evidence-based approach to whether or not dogs and cats enjoy our company. Um, a lot of people have asked this and you may, uh, have nothing to to add to this because you say this is not, you know, my area of expertise, but I feel like you have to, you're, you're a person who understands brains and this is a brain thing. Some people are either in a relationship that just started or they're worried about the fact that they are uh, already, they were already experiencing loneliness and were searching for a special someone. And then this happened. What can you say to those people? <laughs> I would say be patient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be patient. I, I, my advice has been like, just go Victorian on it, ma'am. Like, um, <laughs> like, write a letter write a in, letter in quill pen use a quill pen <laughs> and write a letter and there's a thing called the mailbox and you you might see it they might look strange these strange objects that are out in front of houses that have these little flags on them write that letter get a thing called a stamp and put that stamp on the letter and and make sure you have an address that's more than an email you can't just put their email address on they actually have a <laughs> send a letter right oh, go victorian that would be, go victoria that would be so good like uh, uh that should be a hashtag go victorian the the uh dearest isabel I, my <laughs> thoughts as a as the blight crosses the land, my thoughts naturally turn to you in that morning. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's one way to go about it. Fondness for you. Yeah. It, it's... I feel... It blazes. I don't know. <laughs> it blazes. It blazes. <laughs> work on it. That's the power of being able to, 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 to work out your thoughts on paper. Uh, your first draft. Do not use this. Focus on the good things. There's a... I... Um, yeah. It, well, and I'll just add to that. If you write that letter in a panic... It's probably not going to go well. Sleep, yes, yes. This is true. Also. <laughs> Don't leave me. Don't leave me. <laughs> um, okay, I feel very good about that advice. Uh, and go, go Victorian is where we're going to go with that. Uh, please forgive us. I mean, do use that hashtag if you can. Hashtag go Victorian. But uh, yeah, we were just giddy to talk to someone, anybody during this really bizarre moment. But I also did ask that same question of Dr. Amy M. Gordon, and she gave fantastic advice. What can we be doing to make this less painful over the course of however many weeks this takes? So now you're hitting, you know, my uh, sweet spot with research. I really, I do, a lot of my research is on interpersonal relationships. And we have to recognize that we are very much social beings. We have this, you know, they call our need to belong one of our basic needs. And so when we're not getting that met, that does have, you know, consequences, especially for people who tend to have very social lives. So I think, again, one is just recognizing that if we can figure out where our discomfort is coming from, right, and that some of that is that we're used to being around other people and we aren't so much anymore, um, that can help. But And reaching out to people, right, 
video chatting, having phone calls, writing long letters as as they used to do before technology. I think all of that can help us maintain connection with others uh, to help us get through it. And the people I've seen doing that, it seems like it makes a difference. My daughter's had virtual play dates and you know, hearing her laugh with another kid her age has, I think, been really great for all of us. But also, I just want to point out, we have time now to also take care of ourselves. And so there's sort of this big cycle between our psychological health and our physical health. So making sure we get enough sleep, making sure we exercise, all of that can keep us in sort of a better mental state, right? Exercise is great. One of the best ways, I think, to help treat depression and other problems like that. So not letting ourselves go in that way and using this, you know, unprecedented time of being at home and not having much else on your plate to the extent that you can to make sure you really do go to bed at night and get enough sleep. You're not staying, you know, you you can make your uh, virtual chats at a reasonable hour and still get to bed on time. So I think all of that sort of self-care can make potentially a difference too, because if we don't let ourselves start to feel off in that way and we feel good physically, that that can help buffer some of the social stuff. There is some research showing that when people sleep better, that they can sort of withstand sort of the negatives of social experiences better. Um, So bringing all of that together, I think, to the extent that we can and recognizing where we have control, right? We can control aspects of ourselves maybe a little more than the outside situation and that can help us in many ways wow what uh what about the do you have any tips technologically speaking for uh like i'm a i work from home and Mm -hmm. uh, i don't have kids so um it's it's very strange because i know to lower my anxiety and to increase my overall (laughs) well-being i should reach out to friends and family um, and with all the technological tools available to me, that can be done through a number of messaging services, apps, right. uh, social media sites, or uh, video um, chatting technology. Yet also, yeah. yet also, I'm trying to make things and do things and uh, and be a productive person as well. Right. Um, it's a completely different work life balance now. Yeah. What are your yes, What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I don't know I can if I can give you any great research-based thoughts, but as someone who's worked from home regularly um, for many years, uh, what I've done is set up a routine that sort of just very briefly blocks time, right? I'm going to work in two-hour chunks, and then I take an hour break, mm. maybe building in having a hour of social connection. We do know from research that making um, what they call implementation intentions are really good, so sort of these if then or when then statement. So instead of saying, you know, I'm going to get exercise every day, that's very vague and it's easy Mm. to let that go by. But if you say, you know, when the clock hits 9am, I'm going to put on my tennis shoes and I'm going to go for a walk. And you make a very specific, not just intention, but how you're going to implement that, that that can help. So if you say, you know, at 12 p.m. every day, I'm going to have lunch and call somebody. And you sort of make these specific agreements with yourself um, I think it's a lot easier to keep those going and put concrete things in place that can help you achieve the goals that you want to achieve during this time.
I thought it would be nice to ask all the experts who contributed to this show to just share a final thought, anything, anything they felt would be useful as we move forward into the unknown. Here is Dr. Joe Hansen. The first thing people should do is, I hope, stay calm and stay aware. We don't want fear because I think fear sets off other parts of our cognition that can lead us to other mistakes. But a pandemic like this is global, but it's also very local. And the people that that uh, manage your public health systems where you live know best what is right for you where you live. And that's why it's so important to not only listen to how this is playing out around the world and take heed of those warnings, but listen to the people who know locally um, where, if, and how you should watch your symptoms and get tested, uh, how and, and where you should and shouldn't go based on the advice of, 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 your, of your local leaders. And hopefully those leaders are paying attention and taking this as seriously as the scientific community is. I really see that it's moving in that direction. It gives me hope. Um, if, if we can take really solid, quick, and drastic action with a hopeful and optimistic lens that we're looking through, uh, I think we can get our lives back to some sense of normalcy faster than than the alternative. Richard Chataway. I think the, there's a whole raft of new norms that are being created and the, the, the tools were there for us in a lot of cases. I, I had an experience myself where I organized a, uh, a, a trivia night or a pub quiz on uh, at the weekend with my friends via Skype. And, and the reality is I haven't done a a pub quiz with my friends for a number of years because we all live in very different places in fact some of the people who joined the quiz at the weekend were living in the US and Canada and Australia um, who were friends who've obviously moved overseas or, or people I've, I've met in in the UK and then uh, and then they've moved back home so um, you know the reality is is that this was something we could have done before and it was a great way to catch up with people and, and have fun with friends who who I wouldn't ordinarily see but it took the events of and the and the coronavirus pandemic and outbreak for that to happen and 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 we've already agreed that we're going to do it again next Saturday and and presumably every every weekend till <laughs> till um, till we we get bored of it or or the pandemic ends so um, so I think that you know that there's a um, uh, there's a really interesting aspect to this which is it, you know breaking habits and breaking um, our, our habit loops um, that we get into. Um, is often forced upon us by a change of circumstances or external uh, external uh, factors. And when that happens, that can create completely new norms. Dr. Julia Shaw. One thing that I feel like this pandemic has really helped um, the world with, I think, is that it has opened up some really important conversations about uh, employment structures, frankly, employment structures and poverty. And I think that because of this thing called belief in a just world, where we assume that good things happen to good people. And of course, you always consider, you basically always count yourself as a good person. And so I am a good person. So good things should happen to me, which is also one of the reasons why when things don't go our way, we feel like we, you know, the, the universe is out to get us or there's some other excuse. And it's not really our fault because we deserve much better. But that also means that when we see a person who's poor, a person who's homeless, we might quickly jump to the conclusion that they deserve to be homeless. And so kind of like with this, but in a slightly different way, we think, say things like they're lazy or 
they, whatever, they've made bad life decisions. But what this pandemic is opening up as a conversation is that there's lots of situations which you have absolutely no control over whatsoever, in which you might be laid off, in which you might be under the poverty line, in which you might be living off of the state. And I think that has the potential to really revolutionize the empathy that we give to people who are living in poverty and are living in you know, higher risk, dangerous jobs right now, like cleaning. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, we already undervalue cleaners and now they're putting themselves at risk to keep us safe. Um, and we still don't pay them anything really. And so I think it really gives us, it should give us pause for thought that we can, on the other end of this, maybe build better structures and better support systems to, you know, protect those who are and to some extent always will, not the same people, but there will always be people living in poverty and they deserve to be treated like human beings. And maybe this will help us do that. Dr. Amy M. Gordon. I, we need to use this as a time to come together and recognize that this is an unprecedented situation in which the entire world, I mean, it's basically like what I've always thought would happen if we had aliens invade, right? Some outer enemy that isn't us needing to fight against other humans, but that it's an unprecedented opportunity for the globe to sort of get it together and work together. And that's something that I think particularly in our country is a problem in terms of divisiveness with political polarization at an all-time high. And that it's a time where recognizing that we are all human, we are all fallible, that we give each other the benefit of the doubt instead of laying blame, that the best thing we could do right now is say, okay, we're in this situation. What behaviors do we need to enact to get out of it and to work together for a better future? And to have sort of that perspective of how do we all come together as a team rather than as, you know, it's it's your fault or my fault. Because the statistics on who people are willing to listen to and trust is so politically divided that it's incredibly disheartening. And I think if we can use this as a time to get past that to, in whatever way we can, that that would have long-term benefits. And Dr. Judd Brewer. Uh, you know, I was doing what the first level of it, I guess, that we're all trying to do by sharing information with our friends and family uh, putting stuff out on, on social media to the broader audience that we may or may not have, that feels like doing something. And um, instead of just going into panic mode, instead of taking the the unavoidable fear that you're going to experience and the avoidable anxiety that you're going to experience, instead of submitting to it, it felt very good for me to say, okay, I, do, I can contribute something here. I at least have an audience that I can deliver I uh, can take experts and deliver them to that audience. I, I believe that everyone has some way to contribute meaningfully to this, um, to help in some way. And uh, so may this, may, sorry to interrupt, but I just, I'm inspired by what you just said. May this, may all of us come together and go through this pandemic together. Cause we are actually stronger together, you know, divided, we, we get conquered, um, together we, we prevail can we all come together as a world community and not only make it through this pandemic, which we are, it's just going to be, you know, we're going to have some scars from it, but maybe, maybe we can shift so much in our collective consciousness that we can't go back to being jerks to each other. Just at least not as much. That's my hope, right? 
so there's this there's this uh, theory thaw shift and refreeze right and so some big event brings energy to the pond and a leaf that's frozen in the ice thaws and it can move in the pond right the wind blows it or whatever so may that wind of change be wind of wow it feels good to be connected and kind to each other and then may that freeze back in place when this pandemic is over in a different place in the pond so that we never go back and and you know cuz we were stuck in a really bad habit loop of beating each other up and being nasty to each other and being divisive you know politics everything before this thing happened let's let's hit that reset button on that and remember that we're all human and we're all in this together and let's never go back please i hope i hope we can do a seismic shift that's where it's impossible to go completely back to being assholes so much material that I could not put into this episode. Studies are coming out every day that could add to this discussion, but I didn't want to talk about them unless I could interview the authors. So in the show notes for this episode, I will provide links to those studies and I will update that list as the weeks go by. And maybe I can interview some of those authors and put them into future episodes or as extras on Patreon. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about and links to all the guests, head to youarenotsosmart.com. Dr. Julia Shaw is the author of Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, and also at Psychology Today, the author of Why Some People Are Still Not Staying at Home. You can find her at drjuliashaw.com, and her Twitter and Instagram accounts are at drjuliashaw. Dr. Joe Hansen's YouTube channel is It's Okay to Be Smart. His Twitter account is at drjohansen.com, his YouTube Twitter account is at OKAYToBeSmart.com. And the video we talked about in this episode is titled, What This Chart Actually Means for COVID-19. You can find Dr. Amy Gordon at AMIEGordon.com. And she has a column at Psychology Today titled, Between You and Me. That's AmyGordon.com. You can find Jay Van Babel at NYU.edu slash psychology. He tweets at J-A-Y-V-A-N-B-A-V-E-L, at J. Van Babel. Richard Chataway is the author of The Behavior Business, How to Apply Behavioral Science for Business and Success. He tweets at Rich underscore Chataway, and he has a podcast called The Behavior Business. And Dr. Judd Brewer is at drjud.com, J-U-D, where you can find links to all of his apps and he is currently putting out YouTube videos during the pandemic at his channel, Dr. J-U-D. He 
He tweets at J-U-D Brewer. You can keep up with me on Twitter at David McCraney. The podcast is at Not Smart Blog. You can follow on Instagram. I'm David McCraney. You can follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash you are not so smart. And to support this one person operation, pitch in right here at Patreon. At any amount, you get the show ad free, but at higher amounts, you get shirts and signed books and posters and all sorts of other stuff. All the previous episodes are on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and You Are Not So Smart, and soon Spotify. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And there was so much interstitial music in this episode. I'll just link all the artists at the website. All right. We did it. This was a lot. If you got any value out of this episode, please share it. Please tell everyone about it. Tell people about the podcast on social media. And if so inclined, pitch in at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Thanks for hanging out with me. See you soon. Also, before we go, one more time, for everyone who is at home, isolated, worried, BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who can help through video or phone sessions. Plus, you get unlimited text messaging with your counselor. Fill out a questionnaire, get matched with a counselor that you will love in less than 24 hours. Get professional help whenever you want it, wherever you are. BetterHelp, a truly affordable option, and listeners to this show get 10% off your first month with the discount code YANSS. Go there, do this. I am proud to have them as a sponsor. Betterhelp.com slash YANSS.